Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Kill Bill Volume 2 is the flick that we partook this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, give me your review of Kill Bill Volume 2. I think that Kill Bill 2 demonstrates how Hollywood should be doing movies. It's the Kill Bill (laughs) Volume 1 sets up the the environment. It's the world building. And Kill Mm -hmm. Bill Volume 2 is just the nugget of the story. It is the revenge film just perfectly simplified down to its core and we get the satisfaction of bill actually being killed well yes the the title comes to fruition uh i i have to completely agree with you here i you know when i ranked the movies last week that we had seen so far uh i think i ranked pulp fiction one jackie brown two reservoir dogs three and kill bill volume one four this movie kind of blew me away like i i don't know if i had seen this movie in about 10 years um and i i just thought it was like so much of the of the great quentin tarantino stuff that i had i was really looking for in kill bill volume one um i thought it had great character and the way that we get into the backstories of all these characters is so cool like you get to go to bud's work and see his asshole boss um you know, L gets really fleshed out in this one as like a really evil person, and you're like really rooting for <laughs> for the bride for Beatrix uh, to to knock L out in this one. And Bill himself, like he becomes a much more complicated character, which I really really enjoyed. I thought just the character in general that was developed across this film made it really really interesting. And even though it comes in at a two hour and twelve minute timeline. Um, you know, it kind of flew by for me. This movie's almost as long as Jackie Brown, and it I feel like it didn't lull at all. Yeah, they keep the, the momentum going. And you're talking about mm-hmm. characters. I think the thing that's fascinating across the two films is how little they actually have to input to tell you about the characters. There's yeah. We don't see Elle for a lot of screen time, but we know she's a major league which I just based on on the simple when she does not poison the bride and when she when she's in her coma she gets all kind yeah. of huffy and puffy about it and you're like yeah, she's not that great and it's a dishonorable action in a samurai film essentially and then <laughs> yeah. in this one her betrayal of bud um and the fact that she kills Pai Mei those Three actions are enough mm-hmm. to cement her as just good. Glad she's dead. Well, not dead, but <laughs> her other eyes. Glad she's disabled. I like to think that the Black Mamba finished her off. Yeah, that's what I've always assumed. Yeah. I mean, it's just like her end is so satisfying because they build her up to be like the really the main villain in the movie, I think. <laughs> like, obviously, Bill is the kind of prize at the end of the movie, but... You know, at the end of the film, when they sit down, when Beatrix and Bill sit down and they talk to each other and they talk it out, um, and the there's like a sadness that is hovering over it. Like, you know, it's this weird tension of like they want to kill each other, but at the same time they love each other. 
and but they know like it has to be done like it's one or the other um you know bill is bill becomes a very nicely fleshed out character in this in this film and uh and you really get to kind of understand his side a little bit a little bit but um, you also get the sense that he's cruel he is oh, wildly yeah. cruel despite never seeing him kill anybody or really he just his actions are enough to you know he's dangerous and we're just yeah. not seeing that side of him because of his proximity to Beatrix. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and you also hear him talk on the phone to L um in the first film and he kind of talks to everybody in like this very lulled tone and very calm and very zen-like, but at the same time he himself, you know, he's a self-described, you know, cold-blooded killer. So he also trains these people to uh to be as cold-blooded as humanly possible. Um, I did want to touch on a couple of plot points, and then I'd like to just go into each of these characters because they're fleshed out so well. Um, but uh, but it's interesting. So we open the movie on this uh, on on Beatrix breaking the fourth wall, talking to the audience, and kind of giving them a recap of like where we've been and where we're going. I, I thought that this was a little bit off putting to put it right at the beginning of the movie, just coming from Kill Bill Volume One. Um, but I think it's there for a couple reasons. I think like we talked about in Kill Bill Volume 1 when they, you know, pop up with like the, um, the Klingon quote and they have like the Shaw scope, uh, title slide. Like, I think that this wants to remind you again that like we're watching a movie, like this is a movie and we're going to have this movie experience together. And, and it's done in this film by breaking the fourth wall with Beatrix in her, in her car. Um, and uh, and then we go to the wedding rehearsal, and I actually thought the wedding rehearsal was like the probably the lowliest part of the whole film. I thought it was kind of interesting to start it off with the wedding rehearsal in black and white as well, which was a mm-hmm. I you know I understand the the fight scenes in that black and white, um, but the but that particular scene does feel the oddest, and maybe. You know, if you watch these films, like the four-hour back-to-back version, yeah, <laughs> maybe the breaking the fourth wall feels feels better as an intermission than it does the opening of a film. Hmm. Because you're coming back, and it's like it's letting you know that the time has transitioned. Um, you know, because it brings you in before the chapter. Yes, and it's the first. Well, now I'm trying to think. You know, so many of his movies open with a, a title card of some sort, but right. this one comes in with with the monologue, and then and yeah, that's black and white, a... and then the the scene at the chapel is black and white, and then we go into color when we get to, uh, is it Bill and Bud? I think talking. Yeah, we don't go to color until Bill until basically the massacre happens, um, which is cool because. The only time everything pre massacre is and and uh, and during the massacre is in black and white, and then the the church. The only time we see the church in color is after the massacre when the sheriffs come in and kill Bill Volume One. Um, so and and you could tell, like I said, like you could tell that this was shot in black and white as opposed to the scene at the club in Tokyo, which is you could tell was done in post. Um, you know, the colors are just a little bit richer. The darks are a little bit darker. Uh, you could tell it was lit for that. 
It's also the first time that we see Bill's face, I believe, in this whole series. I think in the first film, all you see are his hands and you hear his voice. Yeah, but they, they pulled the, the first Emperor time. move where uh-huh. you don't see him right, which is awesome. I think more movies could. I hope that the new Star Wars trilogy has a long term <laughs> villain that you don't see until much later on. It's it's such a good uh, uh, trope for tension because you're waiting yeah. to see them. I really wish, like, you know, I, I watched the Star Wars films when I was so young, and we don't have to go on a huge Star Wars tangent here, but I, I wish that I could see them, like, with new eyes <laughs> at this point in my life, like, you know, seeing those little, you know, the little uh, communicator holograms of the Emperor coming in and talking to Darth Vader being like, who is that guy? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, of course I knew who he was because I'd seen Return of the Jedi, like, but before I could even comprehend the whole series, so... I knew who the guy was, but it would be. Gr- I, I I think you're completely right. Like I love how it's like a slow reveal to David Carradine, which is super cool. Yeah, um, have you seen the old Kung Fu TV show? I have not, but I want to. I've seen a couple episodes. Carradine... It's it's pretty cool. It's yeah, it's a nice concept. <laughs> I mean, Carradine is he's pretty badass in this in this whole series, and he does you know get uh, he he. He's a little bit of a sympathetic character, which is hard to do with a guy that that's this big of an asshole, which I really like. Um, plus, I love the callback because you know, in at the end of Pulp Fiction, uh, Samuel L. Jackson says he wants to roam the earth like Kane and Kung Fu, and then you have Kane and Kung Fu in this movie, <laughs> and then you have Samuel L. Jackson show up as a drifter. Yeah, but is that's the problem. Jules? Like, I feel like Samuel Jackson was completely wasted in this movie. <laughs> well, I think he like, he probably had. I mean, the guy acts in so much; it was bound to happen that you know you couldn't yeah. get him in for a larger role. Yeah, that's that's understandable. But uh, yeah, man, like <laughs> I the the whole beginning scene with the rehearsal is just kind of like I, I don't really like the dialogue. I don't like the the preacher and his wife going through the the wedding. Thing. There's there's this whole speech about like the bride side and the groom side and who's on the bride side, but it's like I was trying to th- I was trying to kind of uncover like what that all meant because they mentioned the bride side like four or five times, but it doesn't really make a ton of sense because nobody's on her side. Yeah, but it's trying know? to reinforce the you know it's they kind of bookend this fact that she is a killer first and foremost and. So her at this wedding with people who are ostensibly friends, but really are just, you know, they seem awkward. I, I would be curious to know if it was intentional that this, the awkwardness of this whole setup, the, the low energy compared to when, Mm -hmm. you know, Bill goes into his, uh, exposition at the end about how she's the, the rogue killer bee. She does not fit in. She is Superman and her, her uh, pastiche of daily life is it is not real. Yeah, I I think you're right because it is kind of boring. <laughs> like this opening scene is kind of boring. You know, it's got the the Quentin Tarantino dialogue in it, but the actors aren't very good. But then you're right. Like maybe they're trying to illustrate this boring life that Beatrix was marrying herself into. And you really get to understanding that at the end of the film. I like that take a lot. Um, but, you know, regardless, the thing is that Tarantino, like I said, he knows 
his fans are kind of hungering for what he's going to do next. And I think he can play with that a little bit and kind of open with a little bit of a lighter scene um, as opposed to like the first movie where you open up with a fight scene, um, you know, uh, but you can open up with a little bit of a lighter scene. You know, people are still going to be on board uh, for what's next, which I, you know, he's got a little bit of the audience manipulation technique going at this point, which I have to appreciate because I did think that this film was super strong. I think um, it's, I think it's just a comp, to how he's a movie watcher you know he makes the movies that he wants to watch and so i mm-hmm. i agree i think he manipulates the audience and i think it's because he is such a a big name that's his his thing like it's his life is yeah. watching movies well he's got a weird he's got a weird um you know status even for a film director there aren't many film directors that people know by name um, even, uh, you know, there's like Wes Anderson, um, you know, Quentin Tarantino and then Steven Spielberg, of course, you know, but these really stylized directors in order to get that kind of credibility, you have to, you have to really, you know, deliver over and over and over again on similar themes and similar storylines, but reinvent them and make them new each and every time. And, you know, Quintertude falls into that small category that that drives kind of a cult following. And then he can leverage that cult following to, you know, take them on take them on these cinematic journeys, which I I appreciate. You know, I think he's got that real, uh, real strong understanding of who his audience is and how he can manipulate them, which is cool Um, because his audience is basically himself. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, one of. one other plot point I wanted to hit on this, man. The buried alive scene is crazy oh, intense. Oh, the Texas funeral. Yeah. Like, that is terrifying on so many levels. It's the, um, the one scene I think of whenever I think of this movie is the is the buried alive scene. Yeah. And I think I can actively remember points in my life where I put my hand on a wall that's, like, right in front of me and then do, like, the fist move and go, oh, I wonder if I could. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, yeah, that like the three inch punch too, because that's like that's a callback to uh, to Bruce Lee, like he had this three inch punch move that he would do, which was like became famous. So I liked how that was like a little bit of a nod there. But man, like the when it goes to pitch black, and then you just hear like the the sounds of them of them dropping her into the grave, and then the dirt flying on top. Man, it's just like. Oh, <laughs> I don't count myself as somebody who's very claustrophobic, but man, that scene is so claustrophobic because you're experiencing it at the same time as Beatrix. It's pitch black and all you could do is hear the dirt falling and getting more and more muffled as it gets, you know, deeper and deeper on top of you. I thought it was so good. Um, and then, you know, then we go to the Pi May scene and Pi May is awesome. Uh, I, I, uh, I, we had somebody on the forums kind of comparing uh, Pai Mei to Sonny Chiba uh, in Kill Bill Volume 1. Um, but I feel like they, they kind of serve different purposes. Um, but what what did you think of the of the Pai Mei se- training sequence? I I don't know what it is that Tarantino does to get the 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 texture of the film just right. But mm-hmm. I love the... He starts with like the myth of Pai Mei with Bill telling her the 
the story around the campfire. I think that's awesome. This perfectly, you know, he, he gestures to the monk and the offense when the monk does not return it. And (laughs) they give us this cool, like the five finger, uh, death punch, which is Mm -hmm. a nice callback to kind of the absurdity of older Kung Fu films. (laughs) At the same time, it's, it's foreshadow. And I don't, think i caught it when we fir- when i first watched the movie like the first time in the theaters but it's mm-hmm. such a nice one it's a nice break from the the claustrophobia of the the grave and when it transitions you know because she freaks out she's banging on the on the roof of the thing she's panicking she keeps hitting the flashlight and it keeps like going out and then she just doubles her panic and right. then as we transition into the Pai Mei story, she actively, like you hear her click the flashlight off. And uh-huh. it's just this fantastic cut to a train, a, a training montage, basically, which we don't <laughs> yep. get from Tarantino ever. So that right. was, that's always a ton of fun. And the, the character, Pai Mei is just so well written in that classic master role you know he's he's funny Mm -hmm. in how he he teaches her but and it it culminates when when you find out that l has has killed him and then you find out that he taught beatrix the punch you understand just tangentially that he is truly a great master truly a great teacher and most of all he is a truly a good judge of character and that's why he's mm-hmm. he never taught bill it and he certainly didn't teach l almost anything <laughs> which is why she gets her eye plucked out again uh, right yeah there's I, it, like i love that they go to this training montage and it's super weird like we set it up this guy is like a thousand years old at least yeah one double on tells- three yeah, one is, double on three. Which he is was alive a thousand years, almost exactly from the release yeah. of the film in two thousand. Exactly. The from the first one would have been two thousand three. Yeah. So yeah, one double on three. So he's a thousand years old, and he's super temperamental. And <laughs> I love how like the the first real you know past the story. The first real introduction that we get of him is when Bill comes back and his face is all, <laughs> he's and all shit. screwed up. Yeah, and he goes, you know, he's like, uh, yeah, he'll train you. <laughs> Friendly competition. Yeah. Hates Caucasian, like, loathes American, despises mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, yeah, we go up and we see, like, this old, old dude. And this is, uh, you know, I, I thought it was really cool. I, I had to look this up afterward. But this is the same guy. This is Gordon Liu. He played uh, Johnny Moe, who was leader of the Crazy 88s as well. Yeah, I caught that he, looking through the IMDb cast list. I didn't. Yeah. realized that they had doubled up. Yeah, I thought that was awesome. So he's actually, yeah, he's he's in two different parts of the film. He's he's the leader of the Crazy Eight Eighty Eight, and he's Pai Mei. Um, yeah, it's so interesting because Pai Mei is also like a huge asshole. Well, but everybody, we... everybody but the child <laughs> is just in one way or another a terrible human being. I mean, this is a squad yeah, of assassins trained by mm-hmm. this cruel, like they even title the, the chapter, the cruel tutelage of Pai Mei. <laughs> so it's, yep. It's weird because you do come to like these characters despite their weird shortcomings. 
Yeah, I mean, we talked about it earlier. Like, bad people are more interesting than good people. I think Quentin Tarantino, that's definitely a Tarantino-ism, is that we're just going to make everybody in the movie bad so that you don't have anybody to root for from a moral standpoint, and then we can just develop their characters. So I think that that's really cool. Or or we or we create our own special morality around the scene. You know, the the one that really comes to mind is the uh, the Butch sequence in Pulp Fiction. Like, we're going to create a strange morality play around all of these terrible people. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's such a jerk. But then at the same time, when you find out that L killed him, you're like, why? <laughs> Everybody loves Pime. <laughs> it's probably the, the laugh and the beard. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. And then he sweeps his beard. <laughs> I love how he sweeps his beard every time he's like a, like a little bit pleased. <laughs> he just does like a little bit of a beard. Like when, you know... When Beatrix's hand is basically broken and she can't even hold chopsticks, but then she like fights her way to eating a bowl of rice, and he just does a little flick of the beard. <laughs> this scene, like you're improving. Also, the the whole Pyme setup is really the only background we get on Beatrix. We get nothing yeah. about her childhood. No, no explanation as to why she has become a super. Orinishi's really the only one where we get an explanation. As to why, mm-hmm. you know, how she kind of ended up in this this lifestyle. But this is as far yeah. back as we go with Beatrix. Is, oh, Bill dropped her off to train with this super cool guy. <laughs> and even going in, she claims to be proficient with things. Yeah. I do love Pai Mei's when he grabs her arm backwards and twists it and nearly breaks it. And then he goes, this is my arm. I want it strong. <laughs> it's this, this parent yeah. move of, I've got your nose. I'm going to do with it as I please. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, man. I, I love the whole Pai Mei training sequence. And then it's so good because it illustrates really effective nonlinear storytelling. Because it reveals all these things to you very slowly. Like the whole Beatrix, you know, trying to punch through the solid wood. And then like doing it so much that she doesn't sleep. And doing it so much that her hand is basically mangled. And then you, when you cut back to the coffin you're like oh okay now i know what's gonna happen now i know why we went to that training sequence at that point like it does a couple of things super effectively it it relieves this incredibly intense scene i would venture to say that the burial scene is one of the most intense scenes that quentin tarantino had shot up to this point like it puts you on edge as a viewer and then it relieves you with a little bit of comic relief and you know this beautiful you know setting but then brings you right back to like this is why we cut away so that you know that beatrix can punch through this coffin and get up to the top and then she has her superhero moment where she uh, you know her neo moment where she (laughs) rises through the ground yeah they don't mention in the training montage where she learned to punch through you know six feet of dirt but (laughs) you watch her crawl (laughs) through it in this weird yeah sideways section view um, but you yeah, ignore I was it like, because the, the movie has established that there are just oddities to the, the laws of physics in this world. Right, exactly. And the other thing is that Beatrix really is a superhero, man. I feel like she is she is like a superhero. I know I said I had my stupid fan theory that Reservoir Dogs is Quentin Tarantino's Marvel movie, but I actually think like this is his superhero movie. Like she has so much and, and it's pulled off really well. Like nobody you, she goes into a uh, a club filled with a, maybe 88 assassins, maybe not, <laughs> and she murders all of them. 
And then she, you know, she basically can win a fight against the the best assassins in the world. And she comes out on top every time. And you never doubt it. You're like, we're on board. Like, she is a superhero. But she it's pulled off so effectively that her superpowers don't get boring. And I think one of the reasons why is because she gets her ass kicked in these fights, too. Like, they are even fights. And it always seems like she just kind of comes out just a little bit ahead. And uh, and that's the difference, which I think is really good. Even the first half of her fight with L, it wasn't like mm-hmm. for all of the training montage you see and all of the the kung fu you've seen. It's a brawl. I mean, they're just throwing each other around Bud's trailer. It's not yeah. really a. It's not the the sword fights that we're used to. It's just knees and elbows and throws. <laughs> and so you yeah, get you get a great. different fight every time. Oren Ishii, the the samurai showdown, the crazy eighty eight. Uh-huh. You get your large scale massacre. But she does not actually kill herself. Vernita Green is right. just the whoop, the quick knife yeah. throw. Everybody, but it's dies also a, a great brawl. Yeah, I mean, this one is on par with Vernita. I, I'd like to go to the forums real quick because there's a couple things. Uh, that I'd like to touch on in, in, in terms of the fights that are in this movie. Um, one of them, you know, comes for us from Shum uh, in Utah. I don't know if Shum is male or female, but uh, but Shum says the fight with Daryl Hannah was cool, but I couldn't help but compare it to the fight with Vivica A. Fox, which was way better. So that's one take. Um, and then uh, our buddy Davy Mack from Tokyo, he he says that he loves the fight with L because uh, it's the the trailer almost becomes a character in itself which i thought was really cool cuz like yeah it's a trailer man it's got paper thin walls you just like throw people through the walls uh you know they're probably made out of some kind of composite cardboard so you could do that <laughs> and it just leaves the whole place in shambles well and the um, the the tight confines i mean you're drawing your sword a 3 foot sword yeah in a 8 foot wide trailer like you don't have a lot of room by the time you get your arm span, you get the back span. I mean, you're talking if that sword blade is three feet, then the sheath is three feet. So to get both separated, you need six feet. You have two feet left for your hand, and it just there's a couple moments, and I always think about that now when I see movies where they fight in confined spaces. It's like you know the it's drastically a different way of fighting. Yeah, it's great. I I, I do love how it how it gets compressed like that. And the other thing that I love, and I, I mentioned it last week, is Quentin Tarantino's fight scenes, they, I feel like they're really good length. Like, you know, uh, th- there's this, I think that maybe I've just become accustomed to modern action films where the fight scenes last like 15 minutes. Um, and, you know, there's, there's good length on these fight scenes, specifically the fight scenes uh, with Vivica A. Fox's uh, character and with with Elle in this film. Um you know, there's good length and there's good violence and good brawling. And that, that, like I said, gets you to the point where you're like, yeah, these people are on par with Beatrix. Beatrix gets her ass kicked a little bit in all of these fights. Um, and then she comes back for the death blow. But the death blow always comes almost as a surprise, which I think is great. Like, there's no huge buildup uh, to, to a moment. It's kind of like, boom, split second, she gets the best of them and then they're done. And God, when she plucks L's eye out, it is like <laughs> so satisfying because L is the worst, right? And, she is and there's very worst. little reason to hate L so much, but 
have and having her lose her other eye and just the way that Daryl Hannah just flails yeah. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. But you do, you it's, feel such it's that the the vigilante justice that you've come to know and love from Tarantino, you're like, Yeah, she got hers. <laughs> well then I love how it's uh you know, she like when uh when Beatrix got to Pai Mei, she was fighting with the tiger technique. Tiger crane, is that what it is? Yeah, tiger. Um, uh, I don't. Some crane. It's the tiger something. Tig- she has I thought like it was tiger claws. claw and something. Yeah, crane. and Pai Mei, he he's got like the crane technique. And then when Beatrix goes into the fight with L, uh, L is using that tiger technique, and you're like, uh oh, like she didn't learn. She didn't learn that uh, that that technique from Pai Mei that Pai Mei used to, to best the, the that tiger. It was a tiger crane style, um, back in the day. Oh, what eagle's talon, or eagle's claw. Oh yeah, the eagle's claw was Pai Mei's, and the and the tiger crane was Beatrix's. Just in case you want to put that in your Quentin Tarantino dictionary, but it's great. <laughs> I love how she comes at her with the tiger claws, and you're like, oh shit! Like she never learned from Pai Mei. Like she, <laughs> she basically, you know, just shunned the old man. He didn't teach her anything, and then he plucked out her eyeball, <laughs> and then she poisoned him. Um, and you know, she kills. This is like the third time in the. She kills. She tries to kill people with venom like three times in the movie. Like she tries to poison Beatrix in the first film. She poisons Pai Mei, and she kills uh, kills Bud with the venom from the snake. Um, so she's, she's, you know, she's wily, she's a poisoner, um, but she's really no match because she, uh, I don't know. I feel like she's the type of person, she has everything figured out, but she feels like she has everything figured out. And that's like her greatest weakness is that she doesn't think she has any weaknesses. I think you, um, I think there's also a, a, a sense of honor, oddly enough mm-hmm. to all of these, like, I don't really feel bad when Bud dies. I think he goes in a crummy way. But yeah. at the same time, he didn't fight Beatrix honorably. He shot her with rock salt and buried her. And even <laughs> well, he but he fought her in the way because he wouldn't have been able to match her in hand to hand combat. I don't think. Yeah. So he had to be a little bit smart about it. But yeah. At the same time, even that was a an oddly emotional move. Because, you know, right before he buries her, he's like, this is for breaking my brother's heart. Yeah. And despite the fact that Bud and Bill are fighting, which one more strike against Bill, just everybody hates Bill between Hattori Hanzo and Bud <laughs> and Beatrix and all the people that, and Pai Mei apparently not really taking a liking to him either. Right. Between all those people, you learn that despite Bill's kind of charm, that he's really not a good person. But... There's so much yeah. around like Bud and his actions that make him a sympathetic character. Like this, he's yeah. trying to hurt Bill by saying he hawked the sword, but he still has it. <laughs> like yep. when she finds out, I was like, "Oh, he does still love love Bill," you know, in a weird, <laughs> in a weird brotherly way. But is yeah, it in I, a brotherly I, way? Because even that's vague. Like it sounds like Bill has <laughs> slept with every one of the Deadly Vipers. As he recruits them, I don't know if he killed. I don't know if he slept with his brother. I think that's a bit. But of But he a says the only man I've ever loved. Yeah, because he's his brother. Are they? Yes, they're brothers. I, I, Did you not pick up on that? It, they say it like four times. 
your brother. Yeah, but they might be using it in like a monk way. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Brother in arms. You could take, I don't know. You could take that however you want. That might be your crappy fan theory. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but I, I'm completely on board with you with this Bud character. Like, I, first of all, Michael Madsen kills it. Although he does pretty much act it in almost the exact same way as he did Mr. Blonde. <laughs> but, um, but, I feel like he, you know, he did really well, and we do see his backstory. We see where he's at in his life. He's working at the at the crappy strip club. Um, he's he's got a, you know, his boss is up his ass, and I love the scene when he's in the strip club, and his boss basically says, "Don't come back until I call you." Um, and then he's like, "Oh, and by the way, Rocket's got a job for you. Go talk to her before you leave." And you're like, "Oh, so he's like doing jobs on the side as like an assassin or something." You know, he's doing some underworld jobs on the side. And then he goes out and Rocket's job is that somebody, you know, shit all over the floor in the bathroom and he has to go clean it up. And this is what his life is now. <laughs> um, so I, I just thought that was a, you know, they, they build him up to be a little bit more of a sympathetic character. And also the fact that, you know, Beatrix doesn't actually directly kill him. Um, and I feel like the Texas burial, I feel like he... he kept her alive for a reason i feel like he did that to give her an opportunity to escape but i'm not really sure i don't i thought like, it was just a uh suffer like suffering was his goal for yeah. her death because of what she put bill through i mean how would you even die like that i mean would you die of starvation or would you die of asphyxiation asphyxiation is how you go oh god well it's actually not that bad though Who's just kind of pass out? <laughs> I'm just saying, like you know, L wanted her to suffer to her last breath. Uh, I feel like asphyxiation is a is a little bit of a lighter way to go, as opposed to like a more torturous way. I don't. Know. <laughs> I mean, being locked in a coffin six feet under the ground is pretty torturous. I understand that, but but there's things that he does, like he, you know, he's like, I could mace you in the eyes, um, and you'd be blind, but instead, I'm going to give you this, like, give you this flashlight. Like, he leaves her alive, which, you know, in any hero story, you never leave the hero alive. I've seen enough James Bond stories that you never, like, assume that he's dead and then leave the room, <laughs> you know? Um, so he gives her a little bit of an out. And I do like the fact that even though he didn't get killed by Beatrix, he does get killed by a Black Mamba. So there's the correlation there between Beatrix and Black Mamba, which is good. Um yeah, I mean, I, I feel I felt like he was a little bit of a sympathetic character. The other thing, though, is that he's he's as cold blooded as everybody else because this idea that like she deserves her revenge, but also she deserves to die. Like, I never really got the feeling that Beatrix deserved to die, apart from just a sheer brutality of these people. <laughs> like, leaving to go marry a guy—that's that's that's enough betrayal to to warrant a death sentence. Well, Bill did say he overreacted. <laughs> in one of the great lines of the movie yeah i mean that's that's one of the saddest parts about the whole thing and i think that's one of the reasons why even though bill has his little redemptive story at the end he still deserves the death sentence is because he didn't just kill beatrix he killed like a bunch of innocent people in a church like all of her friends that she had made over that time period like she'd moved to a new town she seemed to have like a really cool little group of friends that she'd made and and those were the people who all got 
you know, just massacre. They didn't have a single chance um, in the whole matter, uh, which which makes it, you know, makes it uh, okay in my view for for uh, for Bill to get the five finger punch at the end of the movie. You know, so we went through L. Sorry, go. I was just gonna say about Bill. One thing that's I just thought of is the fact that you know he tells that whole Superman story about Beatrix and the the analogy with the costume and how, but. Bill also just operates under like the Dostoevsky version of the Superman theory. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. that he feels any wrong in killing essentially non characters in a in a yeah. movie sense. Yeah. He <laughs> everybody is expendable. And also zero cops, once again. Yeah. No, no <laughs> the cops show up and go, hmm, this is weird. She's still alive. All right, we're out. <laughs> Peace out, guys. Uh, I did. Oh, I want to touch on one thing in the uh, fight scene with with L in the trailer. One thing that I really loved was that when uh, Beatrix sticks L's f- face in the toilet to try to drown her. <laughs> yeah, L just flushes the toilet, which I was like, because we've seen this so many times in movies, like just stuffing somebody's face in the toilet. I just love the idea that oh yeah, you just flush the toilet and uh, then you can breathe again. Like uh, this, this very good move. Like I swear, you could, you could almost see the the wheels turning in Tarantino's mind when he was putting that together. That he's seen this so many times in movies of the stuffing the face in the toilet, and that why 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 don't you flush? Just flush it. I thought that was really good. I'm curious how much he's doing the choreography versus like how much input he has into the choreography. Yeah. Because a scene that's this creative, like in the trailer. Oh yeah. Um. And with the the crazy eighty eight, you know, he has very, I think, a very specific vision with how these fights occur and kind of conclude. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much where the choreography of the 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 choreographer versus Tarantino yeah. kind of start and stop. That'd be something I'd really love to to see. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know he he. I feel like this could have was kind of like a dream for him in the, in the very long post credit sequence. I mean, in the very long end credit sequence. So we basically get three end credit sequences. But, you know, you see that he shot in China. Um, he was shooting with, you know, fighting uh, fighting aficionados, stunt aficionados in Asia. Like, I feel like this was a really big opportunity for him to, like, go and pay homage to all of these awesome movies and awesome uh, stunt people and this whole genre that, has been, you know, a little bit overlooked, I think. I th- feel like there was this time in the 90s when it was really cool. Like, Hong Kong cinema was really cool when Jackie Chan was really big. And then, you know, at, and now in, in modern day, it's kind of fell to the wayside in, in in its place. Instead of, like, these cool long-shot action sequences, we're getting these quick-shot action sequences. Which, you know, to me basically shows that the actors don't really know how to fight. And so you have to go quick, quick cuts over and over and over again. Um, there's a, there's this, uh, for anybody out there who wants to learn a little bit more about this Hong Kong cinema, there's this series online on YouTube called every frame a painting. And he goes into Jackie Chan's action comedy and kind of talks about the differences between Hong Kong action sequences and Western action sequences. It's really good. And I, I just really like how, Quentin Tertino is obviously paying homage to these Hong Kong action sequences, um, which is which is great. Um, so we went through L, we went through Bud, and we went through Pai Mei. 
let's talk about let's talk about Bill here. So <laughs> specifically, I love Bill's final action sequence or final you know monologue sequence where he's talking about Superman because it illustrates the point super well. And this is also a point in time when uh, I think Spider Man had been released, but the whole superhero movie was not like apparent at this point. Um, and you know, you talked about it in last week's podcast. This movie has so many comic book elements, and I thought it was great to end it with a with a comic book monologue. The Superman comment has always is always one I kind of remember, and I always pair it with uh, Unbreakable. With the, mm-hmm. the notion of comics as kind of a cultural storytelling. Yeah. And I just, it's a fantastic, and it shows, I think, the whole, because I think when we talk about Bill, especially in this last scene, we should also include BB a little bit, because yeah. everything he says and influences upon her, just, it's, I think it's subtle and Maybe I'm even misinterpreting, but it seems like he's grooming BB to be an assassin. Like, oh yeah, she like uh, Beatrix walks in and they're they're playing with guns, and you know he tells he talks about BB being impervious to bullets, like giving the child the sense at such <laughs> an early age, and then he he puts it, you know, he does the the fish story and death mm-hmm. and relates it to him shooting BB's mom, and BB's just like, oh okay, yeah, I got that. He uses yeah. comic books, which are, you know, they can be adult in nature, but they are a media that is accessible to children. You know, he uses right. that to describe, to to justify, you know, how they act. And I, it's just beautiful, the, the whole scene as he kind of lays all of this out, this explanation. Oh, she watches uh, Shogun's Assassin. Uh-huh. Know, not a kid's movie. <laughs> not a kid's movie. <laughs> but all of this yeah. stuff just leads me to believe like he is he is just you know, they, they call him the snake charmer at the end, and it he mm-hmm. really is. Like he's just and we don't ever see his moment of true evil, which leaves huh. us just with this guy who talks about comic books and plays with his kid <laughs> and but everything he does does just it feels like a subtle manipulation. Oh, he's so emotionally manipulative. He's so crazy manipulative. It's insane. Like, you know, there's the scene when Beatrix comes into the hotel room and you're expecting, you know, this kind of show this kind of like oh Renny, she e showdown. She turns the corner and it's Bill and, and BB just sitting there with their toy guns, like waiting for her. Um and yeah, and then like in a moment she turns from like this person coming as an assassin to this person who's faking dying because BB shot her and this is like her introduction to her daughter. It's like it's crazy. And and the thing is like BB knows that that uh that Beatrix is her mom like right away. Um yeah, there's a <laughs> there's there's such an emotional manipulation there. But then at the same time, Beatrix knows the whole time that she's here, she's here to kill Bill. And if that doesn't happen, Bill is going to kill her. It's like like these these moments where she like tries goes and sits down in the living room, then goes to reach for the sword, and then he already has a gun on hand, he almost shoots her. Like this this relationship is going to end in the death of one or the other of them, uh, regardless. Now, do you think 
that Bill uh do you think that Bill wanted to kill Beatrix in this final scene, or did did he just know that it was either him or her, uh, and so that was why he he had this kind of uh, you know this this death wish against her as well? I'm, you know, now that you ask that, I did not consider that he may have well accepted that he was going to die, and mm. that this was really his opportunity. You know, like he cannot live without her. And so, yeah, he tried to kill her. You know, that was his most, most masochistic, you know, that was him punishing himself the uh-huh. most. Um, that's where I learned the difference between masochism and sadism was that line. Oh, um, so masochism is punishing yourself and sadism is punishing other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. or like getting off on that particular action. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I now I, now that you pose that, I wonder if he accepted he was going to die, but he wasn't going to do it lightly. You know, he. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of who make because he makes the first move when they're out at the back table. Yes, he does. He yeah, sweeps he, he across the table. The she yep. leans back. Hmm. I mean, yeah. There's, and she he also lets her bring her sword out to the patio. Which I think is interesting. Like, I think he knows that this is where the showdown will happen. Um, and then, yeah, there's kind of this beautiful moment after she does the five-finger punch and he knows that he's dead. Where he, they accept, they they can sit there and it's it's this, this interesting, you know, thing in cinema... And in storytelling, the you know, the one that it goes back to for me is, is Romeo and Juliet. Like, uh, when... Uh, Romeo takes the poison and right before he dies he sees Juliet wake up and there's this like moment where they could be together even though one of them is on the road to death and there's nothing that either of them could do about it but this moment here is very similar in that you know Bill knows that he's dead like <laughs> the second that that happens Bill knows that he's dead and then they could sit there and say goodbye to each other and then he takes his walk and that's it like, you know, he could have just uh, gotten a wheelchair. He'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. And over like, the course like, of his life, he steps. gets to make five steps. Well, it'd be great. But at, at any point, he can decide that it's all over. <laughs> he <laughs> does exactly weird, what he needs to do. That's a weird conjecture. Well, like, what is it? Like, when he stands up, does that count as a step? Because, like, <laughs> would he be able to get into bed? What if he sleepwalks? That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so many questions here bill no but it, it really is this beautiful scene like she has a tear you know she sheds a tear at the end because it's this weird love story this is like a weird ass love story between bill and beatrix uh they really do love each other but their love is is lethal uh it's this weird thing of like they can't be together and because of that then one of them needs to die <laughs> such a strange dynamic between two lovers that it's like uh yeah it's just, it's just so so weird and it's entirely because of bb like that's the, yeah this is the ultimate story of it when the child you know when your parents get divorced and you say the kid <laughs> asks was it my fault this was bb's fault really because yeah no long Be- Beatrix could no longer <laughs> do the assassin lifestyle because she was going to be a mom. 
Yeah, it was so interesting too. We I'd love to talk about that last scene when the uh what was her name? Was her name Monica? I can't remember what her name was. The assassin comes in and they have like that weird like weird comedic scene that breaks up the conversation between her and Bill, uh, where the assassins are like firing at each other and then the pregnancy test is there and one of them checks the pregnancy test and then leaves. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Congratulations through the hole in the door that she shot with her shotgun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like these people are supposed to be cold-blooded assassins. Like really, like uh, finding out that one of them is pregnant is going to stop you from carrying out your job. So here's I don't know. Here's the question: If you know, because I think this maybe kind of explains all of the characters. You talk about the cold-blooded assassin, mm. but nobody is really that cold blood with the exception maybe of l and bill because how many of them are still assassins vernita green has gone and gotten married and basically has the life that beatrix wanted and she that's true and she basically left somehow bud you know for whatever reason had some sort of emotional tiff with bill and is now like (laughs) a low rent bouncer you know everybody moved Uh on orinishi moved on to become a kingpin of the underworld no longer really like an assassin by trade everybody yeah. has moved on with the exception of Alan bill right and that's yeah maybe it, that's it is like everybody eventually falls out and we're kind <laughs> of seeing all of the different ways you could fall what you fall what do you do in a world where you were an assassin make killing people gallivanting around the world making vast sums of money what do you do after that? What do you do when your humanity catches up with you? <laughs> yeah, man. Well, and I think that the implication there too is that L was with Bill. Um, because, you know, when she calls him from the hospital room, he says, like, come home, baby. I think that's what he says. Um, and that's what I think that's why it's so cool because, you know, L basically is the alter or not the alter eagle, but the, um, the, the the that kind of polar opposite villain that you want in a superhero movie like she went through the same training but she couldn't hack it uh she's with bill as well um you know and and she's super i think her whole thing is built off of this jealousy around beatrix because beatrix is kind of this like you know she's bill's favorite she's kind of this like pure of heart assassin (laughs) and and that's the reason why that's ultimately like her downfall uh is because bill can't live without her like he's got this crazy infatuation with her um and it's something that l will never be able to live up to and that makes l resent beatrix to the point that not being there to kill her gives her regret um yeah just these great balancing acts there so let's end with Beatrix, man. So we've seen Beatrix now for this entire film series. What What is your final take on Beatrix as a character? Because I feel like she's surrounded by so many great characters in these movies that she almost becomes our invisible, you know, uh, tour guide throughout this kind of crazy scene. But she's also got she's also got great emotion, emotional, uh, you know, resonance, and I think that all kind of comes together at the end. Of the movie when she's looks like she's bawling, looks like she's crying on the bathroom floor as her daughter's watching cartoon, but then you realize that she's actually laughing in full relief because she's finally free. But uh, what's your what's your take on Beatrix? I mean, she is 
revenge incarnate and in mm-hmm. so many instances for movies there's you get the weird sort of revenge at the end it's never quite the just like a straight killing for a lot of movies there's always like a moral tale about oh but you know they left them alive to be to go through the justice system because that's the right form of you know despite revenge right. they deserve you know their fair day in court or whatever right this one she truly does. She kills her way all the way to Bill, kills him, and she's done. And that right. final moment is her, you know, she is finally released. She can be just a mother. And, you know, who knows if she's going to be any good at it, honestly. Well, this is so the crazy what is, thing. What is their next step? Yeah, she she admits that that would have been her alter ego of go, <laughs> going out and and being, you know, what she thinks society thinks that she should be. I really love that line from Bill when he was talking about Superman, and he's like, who is Clark Kent? He's cowardly, uh, you know, all this stuff. He's actually a reflection of what Superman sees in humanity. He sees humans as cowardly and weak. And it's like, holy crap, man, that's really, first of all, it's an awesome, strong take on Superman that you don't usually hear about. But second of all, that's what Beatrix ultimately sees as like her normal life she's a she's a born cold-blooded killer um and i don't know if she's going to be happy (laughs) just cruising around with bb like i you know there's been talk of of you know kill bill volume three um and by the way quentin tarantino it's time and time again has has denied that he actually wants to make this movie anytime soon um but the the you know presumed premise of Kill Bill Volume Three would be that Vernita's daughter comes back to kill Beatrix. Um, but I would actually like to see like a sequel where like what is Beatrix's life right now with BB? Like what are they doing? Like wh- how did how did they turn out? Did they go back to El Paso and open a used record store, or are they like you know? fly-by-night assassins who <laughs> circle the globe and, and do covert operations for covert uh, organizations. I don't know. Um, and I don't know if she's going to be ultimately happy. And that's, that's that's kind of the open-ended part. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the character. Like, we, her whole, everything she was set up for was revenge. And so they were left with our own. And this is always my favorite thing with movies is when when the movie does not require that something be said about you know, the future or a tangentially related component, you know, when they leave it open-ended for your own interpretation, I think that yeah, we've seen her just in revenge mode and who knows what's next? Who cares? It doesn't matter. That's up for the viewer to decide like where she moves on to because the, the facet of her that was destined for the movie is done and over with. And that's, that's, that's true, the man. laugh. That's that you said, you know, it's the relief um yeah in the end you know she did not feel regret she felt relief and where she goes from there who who knows yeah and i i I, it's totally true the other part about this is that from the beginning quentin tarantino has told us this is a movie you know experience it as a cinematic experience and therefore it doesn't really matter because beatrix doesn't exist after the end credits are over the movie is done, so the story is finished, and just chill out about it. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I was saying at the start, like, I wish that Hollywood could do this, where the first movie sets up the environment. Stop doing the trilogy mm-hmm. thing. Like, everybody wants to do a trilogy right up front. 
screw that. Do right. two films. Do the first one is your world building, and then do your film, and then other things can come in later. But trying to drag right. a movie out over three films, something about the the way that that is cut up just does not does not work. I mean, it's the same. I think Hunger Games had this problem because it was across yeah. three books. The first one sets up the world, sets up the rules. Great. Second mm-hmm. one, fantastic. You know how she kind of overcomes that system, and then you can stop there. Don't try and yeah. make a weird third. Well, don't movie get me that started. Disregards on everything J-Part that has one. come before it, and then shoehorns yeah. an ending in. You don't need that. Exactly. I kind of like that, man. Yeah, Mockingjay Part 1 was the most boring film I've ever seen in my life, by the way. You could probably maybe skip don't... number two. It doesn't really get more exciting. Well, maybe they should have maybe made it one movie instead of two like two-hour movies. You can't turn a 100-page book into a two... Anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't care that much about it, but whatever. <laughs> uh, just one thing I want to touch on real fast here. The Esteban scene. That was super weird, right? Oh, yeah. Like, why was that there? That's the same the guy that plays thing... the, the sheriff, too, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the sheriff scene, like, at least leads us to uh, the reveal that, she you know, she's still alive, right? Um, But, yeah, like, Esteban, I so Michael Parks played Esteban. Michael Parks, uh, he's basically, he's in, like, uh, a bunch of movies in like the '60s, like that's where he started off. So it might be like some kind of, um, you know, one, once again, like a callback of Quentin Tarantino being able to direct one of his idols, which is all well and good. But the scene is so strange. The only thing that comes out of the scene is that, um, and you have to listen really carefully because <laughs> he's so super careful. hard to understand. <laughs> he is super hard to understand. I turned the subtitles on so I could fully get what's yeah. going on <laughs> yeah the only thing that comes out of the scene is that bill wants her to come like he's like i'm gonna tell you where bill is because he would want me to tell you like he wants her he wants he's welcoming this final showdown which is it's just really really interesting man it's a great way to end the series because it's this weird welcome welcoming like welcome back reunion but then it, the the it's a foregone conclusion. Like we know that Bill is going to die. It's literally the title of the movie. So I like it's, and and I feel like it's the approach to the enemy's lair in in a fantasy yeah. movie. Like this is the the gates of Bill's. You know, you see just a where he came from because uh, Esteban talks about you know knowing Bill's mom. But mm-hmm. it is just kind of this lead up. Like good luck, have fun. <laughs> no, it is good. I mean, and that whole monologue with, with Bill at the end of the movie, that's the type of monologue that is, you know, very tropey in like James Bond films. Like the villain sits there and tells you everything before the final showdown. But in this one, it works completely because the characters have been built up to this point. There's a reason for everything, uh, for everything that's supposed to happen. And so when we do go to the villain's lair, and when he does give that final monologue, it's enthralling as opposed to tropey and, you know, rehashed, which, you know, that's what that's what Tarantino does best is he he finds the the nuggets and the things that that have built cinema to where it is today. And then he recreates them and reimagines them in a way that is incredibly interesting and incredibly entertaining. And um, yeah, Kill Bill Volume 2, man, it was 
It was really good. I loved. I I I really really enjoyed my 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 watch through of this movie. All right, buddy. Well, next week we have Death Proof, so I I would invite all of our uh, listeners to go to forums.ballmove.com and go to the Death Proof forum. Um, this was part of the Grindhouse series. I'm really excited to revisit it because I don't think I've seen this movie since it was in the theater. Um, I don't think I have either. I'm going to watch both just for kicks. Since I, yeah, why since not? together I think they're maybe three hours. So Yeah, give it a shot. Um, so please go to forums.ballmove.com and uh, be a part of the conversation there. And uh, also email us, directpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback and we'd love to put it on the air. Until next time, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.